On our last episode of our series on FDR, we discussed Franklin's harrowing crucible that was polio. Before his illness, he was sometimes a brash, arrogant young man. After battling polio, his quality of soul was changing. He learned how to put a positive face on struggle, and no matter what, keep working. Before returning to a life of politics, he decided to help others overcome their affliction with the creation of Warm Springs. There, he would not only learn about the struggles of his fellow comrades in the fight against polio, also about the struggles of the common man at the bottom of the economic pyramid in the rugged, poor Georgia area surrounding Warm Springs. More importantly, he found a way to give hope and inspiration to the patients at Warm Springs. He showed them that there was something they could do to fight back, that they could improve their lives. Hope and inspiration was the best medicine he could give his patients. But old Dr. Roosevelt's work was not done yet. For in the late 1920s, outside the paradise of Warm Springs, there is a sinister illness growing across the nation. An illness which would cripple the entire world and kill thousands. The Great Depression was slowly attacking and gnawing away at the nation's immune system. Nobody seemed to have a cure, except for old Dr. Roosevelt. So, let's dive into part three of Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Episode 12, America's Great Plague. The Great Depression is almost indescribable in today's world. It's an economic event that has not been experienced since in the United States. So to get a good feel for it, Meridel Lesueur wrote an amazing report of her experience during the height of the Depression. She wrote, quote, I'm sitting in the City Free Employment Bureau. It's the women's section. We have been sitting here for four hours. We sit here every day, waiting for a job. There are no jobs. Most of us have had no breakfast. Some have had scant rations for over a year. Hunger makes a human being lapse into a state of lethargy, especially city hunger. Is there any place else in the world where a human being is supposed to go hungry amidst plenty without an outcry, without protest, where only the boldest steal or kill for bread, and the timid crawl the streets, hunger like a beak of a terrible bird at the vitals? We sit looking at the floor. No one dares thinks of the coming winter. There are only a few more days of summer. Everyone is anxious to get to work to lay up something for that long siege of bitter cold. But there is no work. Sitting in the room, we all know it. That is why we do not talk much. We look at the floor, dreading to see that knowledge in each other's eyes. There is a kind of humiliation in it. We look away from each other. We look at the floor. It's too terrible to see this animal terror in each other's eyes. End quote. Animal terror in each other's eyes is a powerful statement. Meridil was one of the many Americans looking around, 
with animal terrors in their eyes. There is a good reason for it, too. The Great Depression infected the United States. It seemed the nation was on its deathbed. So that begs the question, how did this disease turn what we know today as the Roaring Twenties into dread and animal terror? Well, if you typed into WebMD the causes of the Great Depression, you'd get a massive laundry list. To help save you from falling asleep and from boredom, I'll be covering just two of the major causes, deflation and a weak banking system. So first, let's tackle deflation. To put it simply, deflation occurs when there's no currency circulating. The deflation which occurred during the Great Depression was caused by the freezing up of credit. So without credit, the amount of dollars being circulated dried up. Therefore, spending went down. And for those who remember anything about any economic class, low supply means high demand, which translates into the good becoming more valuable. So the United States dollar was in low supply and high demand. Therefore, the United States dollar was becoming more and more valuable. Which sounds great, right? Your money is getting more valuable by you essentially doing nothing. Hooray! Except that it's not. Because while the money you have is more valuable, your employer is going to struggle to be able to pay you. Worst of all, since there's no money being spent in the market, it means your employer isn't selling their goods. So, with the cost to employ you going up, combined with the fact that nobody is spending money on your products, your employer can't pay for you and you get fired. Then the business closes, which perpetuates that cycle of not spending. That was the first in a long row of dominoes which caused the Great Depression. The next domino was a weak banking system. Back in the day, there were no Bank of Americas or Wells Fargo's. Most banks were small-town operations. And these banks typically didn't have a lot of money in reserve because they were so small. They also didn't have a lot in reserve because they were speculating recklessly with their clients' money in the rampaging stock market. So, if lots of people panicked and ran to their bank to get their money, the bank would not have enough money for all the withdrawals. Essentially, the American banking system was a powder keg drenched in gasoline rolling down a hill towards a bonfire. What would help propel this powder keg down to the bonfire was the stock market crash. But before we get to that, it's important to know that the stock market was not the cause of the Great Depression. Rural areas of America were struggling before the market crashed because of debt and falling prices. But it did damage the American psyche and bring on panic. The crash occurred because of rampant speculation and buying on margin, which is when you essentially go into debt to invest money. So, on Black Tuesday, the market crashed and lost one-fifth of its value in a single day. The keg had exploded. Soon banks all around the country were closing because of Americans panicking trying to get their money out of the bank. Which brings us back to the definition of deflation. Deflation occurs when people don't spend their money. And because of the panic, people were less likely to be spending money and couldn't even get their money out of the bank, which deepened 
that deflationary cycle. So, to end my economics lecture, there were a lot of reasons which led to the Great Depression. But deflation, a weak banking system, and the stock market crash were some of the main causes. I can go on and on about things like the gold standard or raising of discount rate, but this isn't an economics podcast, it's a history podcast. So let's get back to the history. During the start of the Great Depression, Franklin was the governor of New York. Just like when polio rendered Franklin paralyzed in bed, the Great Depression was crippling the United States. Gloom infected the country. Going down the streets of New York, Franklin must have seen people looking like kennelless dogs. If we were to walk into a hotel room, the owner might ask him if he wanted the room for jumping or sleeping. And further down the street, he would see a benign shanty town called a Hooverville, which were sprouting up all over the place and named after the current president, Herbert Hoover. In the Hooverville, Franklin would see degraded men sleeping in boxes with every ounce of dignity lost in the Great Crash. Inside a once magnificent box which carried a piano, you would see a large family living inside. The world looked awash in the color gray. Hoover, though, was recommending the Hayek approach to the recession. Hayek, a famous economist, said that the government should not spend, but rather private investment should lead the way to recovery. So, Hoover did nothing. He once famously told a crowd of people who were like Merido, who were waiting in line for jobs and, you know, skipping breakfast. And he told them that it's not like people were starving, which people definitely were, because malnutrition rates were soaring in New York hospitals. So people were getting frustrated with Hoover's act of, oh, everything's fine, you guys aren't starving, we just need to wait for this to get better. On the other end of the spectrum, there was Franklin. Franklin wanted action. He saw the government as an instrument to help communities. So while Hoover was insisting that things would correct themselves while they actually worsened, Franklin took action. For the first time in political history, Franklin brought politics right to the people through radio. What would become his famous fireside chats made people feel involved and raised their spirits. He also implemented the first government relief program, which helped 40% of New Yorkers find jobs. His program was so effective, it would be copied by other states. Franklin would say that he was championing the forgotten man. He was fighting for the men and the families living in the boxes. Franklin, like he did with polio, was in the trenches, taking the fight head on. Soon, people started to cheer for him to run for president, which Franklin obviously loved. He set about sticking Lewis Howe, his top political advisor, and Farley, his best administrator, to the task. Farley's job was to round up the delegates required for the Democratic nominee, because back in the day, votes for the Democratic nomination were done through delegates from each state, compared to today, where we use popular vote for the nomination. Farley got some good news early on that signaled major success was on the horizon, because both Maine and Iowa gave Franklin support. This was so impressive because those states have vastly different interests. So, the fact that they both gave their support was a sign that Franklin 
was on a northern man. He was a man who could be supported by north, south, west, and east. One big issue for Franklin, though, was coming up with policy. So instead of relying on himself, he decided to build a team of the smartest scholars in the country. And he recruited Raymond Moley to head this group. While Moley didn't have all the brains himself, he was well-connected with leading experts and brought on the best. So, with Howe handling the politics, Farley, the administration, and Moley, the brain trust, Franklin and his team prepared for the Democratic Convention. His main opposition was Al Smith, the man who he gave that rousing speech for last episode. The men were now bitter enemies. Smith stood for conservative Democrats who were pro-business. However, he had no real chance of being nominated. His only hope was to force the nomination voting into deadlock, so that maybe a favorite from a state would be nominated. Smith just wanted to stop Franklin at all cost. There was a battle brewing in the Democratic Party between Franklin and Smith forces. The battlefield would be in Chicago. In March 1932, both sides started honing their weapons and setting up their camps. Things were not guaranteed for Franklin. He had about three chances to win the nomination before the walls of his fortress crashed down. The first attempt to breach the walls was alarming. Franklin was a whole 104 votes short. Cracks were starting to show. The second vote did not ease Franklin's anxiety. He was 93 votes short. It was now do or die. Franklin had one more chance to be nominated before chaos surged over his mighty walls. Like the great battle of Helm's Deep, the stopped Roosevelt forces had broken down the walls and started to storm towards the inner keep. The third ballot came. Franklin was still short by 88 votes. Al Smith and his men were now pounding on the doors of the keep. Victory was in sight for them. They were confident that the fourth ballot would bring deadlock. On the eve of the deciding battle, Smith and his coalition were splintering the great door of Franklin's keep. Soon they would be in and drive a sword into Franklin's presidential dreams. The voting started. The clerk called out Alabama and Arizona, which both voted for Roosevelt. The door was holding. Then, walking up to the podium, William McAdoo, who was representing California, cleared his throat. A wave of unease fell over Smith's forces. William McAdoo said, quote, California came here to nominate a president, not deadlock a convention. End quote. Al Smith and his men quickly turned to try to counter the surprise attack, but it was too late. McAdoo continued, The great state of Texas and the great state of California are acting in accordance with what we believe is the best for America and the best for the Democratic Party. California cast its 44 votes for Franklin D. Roosevelt. End quote. The Californian and Texan cowboys charged into Al Smith's men, washing them away. The battle had been won. Now to say that the Californians and Texans had a sudden change of heart 
all on their own would be a lie. Their change of heart sprouted from the diligence and hard work of Farley and Flynn, who were Franklin's eyes, ears, and mouth during the convention, since, due to tradition, potential nominees were not permitted to attend. They had convinced McAdoo, who represented California, and Garner from Texas to swing for Franklin. Then, in classic Roosevelt fashion, Franklin smashed that old Democratic tradition of the winning nominee not attending and then feigning ignorance until a few weeks after. Instead, he boarded a plane, which were still extremely dangerous and crashing all the time, and flew from Albany to Chicago to accept his nomination and give a speech. In it, he preached that he would go to war against Hoover and the troubles affecting the country. And at the end, he made a pledge. He said, quote, On the farms, in the large metropolitan areas, in the smaller cities and in the villages, millions of our citizens cherish the hope that our old standards of living and of thought are not gone forever. Those millions cannot and shall not hope in vain. I pledge you, I pledge myself, to a new deal for the American people. Let us all here assembled constitute ourselves prophets of a new order of competence and of courage. This is more than a political campaign. It is a call to arms. Give me your help, not to win votes alone, but to win in the crusade to restore America to its own people. End quote. With a new deal in hand, Franklin now turned to launch a crusade against Herbert Hoover. If Franklin had Helms Deep to defend himself with, Hoover's defense was more like one of the boxes you would find in a Hooverville. The Great Depression had left him deeply unliked. Sometimes, it seemed like Hoover was just trying to get the American people to hate him. Besides telling people that everything was fine when things clearly weren't, the high watermark for Hoover unpopularity came with the rising of the Bonus Army. The Bonus Army was World War I veterans who wanted their war bonuses early. However, Army is a much too threatening word to describe this group. The veterans, with their families, set up camps in Washington and protested for their bonuses. Now, let this moment in history be an example of the worst ways to handle criticism or protest. Because instead of treating the veterans and their wives and kids with humanity and respect, Hoover's administration chased them away like wild dogs. Hoover put the egotistic George MacArthur in charge of the operations. On the day of the operation, George MacArthur rolled up in full military uniform with medals and all to take command. And what followed was a public relations nightmare. Homeless, poor veterans were chased out of Washington with tanks and tear gas. Hoover had unleashed what seemed like a full-scale military operation on homeless veterans and their families. Who in their right mind would want to vote for that guy? So the Bonus Army, coupled with the worsening economy, spelled disaster for Hoover. Hoover's solution 
to the great economic crisis was to follow the trusted doctrine of laissez-faire. Live and let live, a.k.a. do nothing and let the market fix itself. However, as time progressed, instead of letting the market live, it started looking like he was leaving it to die instead. To give Hoover some credit, though, he did what the economic theory at the time demanded. So he was doing what he was supposed to do according to the times. And by the time he started to use the federal government to intervene, it was a little too late. In fact, one of his moves to intervene and help the economy proved disastrous when he proposed the Smoot-Harley tariff. The tariff deepened the depression even more due to foreign goods becoming more expensive, and in addition, foreign countries responded with tariffs on U.S. goods, so less U.S. goods were selling now too. In all, Hoover did too little to stop the illness from worsening. He was expecting the country's immune system to fight off the infection on its own, but what it really needed was some medicine. Luckily, they had old Dr. Roosevelt, who seemed to have a plan of action. Roosevelt appealed to the American value of you can do anything you set your mind to if you work hard enough. Like a breath of fresh air, Roosevelt's message of action rolled through the Hoovervilles and brought an ounce of hope. The promise of a new deal inspired Americans. He venomously attacked Hoover for placing patches on a leaking roof instead of building a new roof. In addition, Franklin let his team do what they did best. Howe worked his political magic, while Farley administrated the entire campaign. And lastly, Moley and the Brain Trust came up with rousing speeches. So, with hope in one holster and an outstanding team in the other, Franklin swept the election. It was joked about that Franklin could have been vacationing in Europe and still beat Hoover. The nation had chosen action over doing nothing. However, it still wasn't all sunshine and rainbows in the country. The months between when Franklin was elected and his inauguration were some of the toughest of the Depression. The banking system continued to crumble, and that animal terror in Americans' eyes became more and more intense. And the scene at Franklin's inauguration reflected that mood. Cloudy, cold, and windy. Some of Franklin's cabinet members remarked that it seemed like a funeral. When drafting his speech for the inauguration, he wanted it to be stern, but also hopeful. He wanted to tell it to the Americans straight, but also tell them what could be. Appealing to the American can-do attitude, he wanted to declare a war on the disease plaguing them. Quote, I am certain that my fellow Americans can expect that on my induction into the presidency, I will address them with a candor and a decision which with the present situation of our people impel. This preeminently the time to speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly and boldly. Nor need we shrink from honesty facing the conditions in our country today. This great nation will endure as it has endured, will revive and will prosper. End quote. Unlike Hoover, who was saying things weren't bad and that telling people living in boxes that no one was starving, 
Franklin was prepared to tell them the hard truth. Masterfully, he follows it up with hope that the nation can endure. And with his famous quote, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. That the fear they feel is irrational. And like a great leader, he involved everyone, saying that with their help, they can all get through this. That one day they will prosper again. Franklin continues in his address, talking about the failure of big business, the failure of banks, and how he intends to put Americans back to work and begin a process of restoration. More importantly, he calls for unity, for Americans to come together to march as one loyal army against the Depression. He ends his speech with, quote, We face the arduous days that lie before us in the warm courage of national unity, with the clear consciousness of seeking old and precious moral values, with the clean satisfaction that comes from stern performance of duty by old and young alike. We aim at the assurance of a rounded and permanent national life. We do not distrust the future of essential democracy. The people of the United States have not failed. In their need, they have registered a mandate that they want direct, vigorous action. They have asked for discipline and direction under leadership. They made me the present instrument of their wishes. In the spirit of the gift, I take it. End quote. Just like he had done at Warm Springs, he was giving the nation a dose of hope and inspiration. It was now time to come together and fight this sickness. His entire life was a metaphor for what was happening in the nation. Just like the United States, he was once on top of the mountain. When he finished his run for vice presidency in the first episode, he was set on the path of becoming the governor of New York. And in the early 1920s, the United States was at a new high watermark of influence and power. But just like polio had wrecked Franklin, the Depression crippled the United States. They needed someone like Franklin, who had worked hard and diligently to overcome his polio. Someone who knew what it was like to try anything and everything to improve. Someone who could act against something that no one knew how to fix. And Franklin had mastered this art. Because he had not only applied it to himself, but he applied it to his patients at Warm Springs. And now it was time for old Dr. Roosevelt to treat and rehabilitate his country, just like he did for himself and at Warm Springs. There is no better person to lead this effort than Franklin. Americans have always been enamored by the underdog story. It's rooted in the founding of our country, when a bunch of backwater colonists upset the great British Empire. We love a good underdog. Even now, with the story of Joe Burrow, a once third-string quarterback who had to overcome failure and hardship to become the best quarterback in college football, he has captured the imagination of the country right now. That same underdog story applied to Franklin, and it gave hope to the country. Because Franklin 
had once not even been able to sit up. But through hard work and struggle, he overcame his polio and became the President of the United States. The nation was inspired by Franklin and his story. Now, he enlisted every American in their own underdog story. They were brought low to the ground, but now they had the opportunity to work hard and overcome it. <laughs>